Welcome to the first in an ad hoc series of programmes exploring the creation of recordings by artists living or past. This inaugural edition explores the life and career of Phyllis Hyman. The 6th of July 2021 would mark what would have been the Soul Doyen's 72nd birthday. And to mark the occasion, Soul Music Records in association with Cherry Red presents a stunning collection of a nine CD box set of the singer's recordings. She is perhaps better known for You Know How to Love Me, Living All Alone and Don't Want to Change the World. Born in Philadelphia, Phyllis Hyman sadly passed away in 1995 after issues with bipolar disorder. But her legacy leaves us with an extraordinary body of work which covers music, film and theatre for which she won a Tony Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress for Sophisticated Ladies. Today I'm joined by David Nathan who is responsible for this project, working with Cherry Red and Phyllis's long-term manager, Glenda Gracia, and the singer's estate. David, you met and interviewed Phyllis several times throughout your own career as a writer for Blues and Soul and Billboard. What was your first impression of her? Uh, I first met Phyllis um, in 1977, and it was um, on the occasion of the release of her first full album uh, on Buddha Records. And at the time, I was living in New York, and I was uh, the primary correspondent for Blues and Soul. Um, and she had made a couple of records prior to that. and uh, But they, my first impression was quite interesting in as much as we did the interview uh, in her apartment and her apartment at, at that time was in the next street to where I lived. So I lived on 56th Street and she lived on 55th Street. And it was unusual for me to do interviews in someone's home environment. You know, usually it would take place at a record company office. I don't quite remember how that came about. Uh, what I do remember is, uh, you know, um, First, recognizing how tall she was. This was not a short person. Um, and I'm relatively short. So, uh, you know, the first thing I, I was aware of is this is, she's like six foot one. I mean, the really tall woman. And she was there with her uh, then husband, um, with whom she had uh, written music. They had worked together in Miami, uh, Larry Alexander. So it was very a very kind of different environment, very kind of uh, cozy. Uh, it let us, it lent, lent itself to having a chat rather than like a interview per se. And the first thing I remember is she was really, she was very open, very, very, uh, uh, you know, kind of, kind of taken, taken aback. Well, not taken aback, but excited that she was doing an interview with someone from another country. Because this is really at the very, virtually the beginning of her recording career. I mean, she had recorded just prior to that with Norman Connors, uh, which is really what was her breakthrough in terms of national recognition in, in America on his album, uh, uh, You Are My Starship, which uh, the, she did duet with uh, Michael Henderson. But the main track that people remember from that album is um, Betcha by Golly Wow. It's her rendition of the stylistics by golly wow so my first impression of her uh she i think she was a, honestly i think she was a little nervous because I, you know this was like a new experience for her doing press 
she hadn't, yeah, so I was probably one of the first people to interview her. Uh, back at that time, you know, um, the record companies in New York uh, would send send me as a blues and soul rep, so to speak. To, they'd ask me to, to do interviews with all their new artists, anyone who had a new record and new artists in particular. Um, so it was, uh, she was excited about it. Uh, I found her very, uh, very, how can I say this? She was, she was what I call a smart artist. So she, she gave, she thought about her answers, and she was very um, upbeat. Uh, and, and and quite yeah, I, I thought she was yeah, what I call an intelligent artist. Like she knew what she was up to in music, and um, it was a very enjoyable conversation, very enjoyable. And in fact, I I, I know that I think the headline of the article that I came up with uh, after I did the interview was uh, uh, this lady's got star karma. That's right. But also in that article, what stood out for me was that you describe her as having a gift of cohesiveness. Can you expand on that for me? Yeah, well, that's what I just alluded to. You know, she, she, she um, as, as a, in a sense, new recording artist, one necess- wouldn't necessarily expect someone to be as fluent in being able to respond to questions. Um, that's usually something people develop over time. And this isn't specific to a particular genre of music. It's just when someone first begins their recording career, a lot of times they're what we call green in terms of ability to, to um, converse about their music, what they're up to, what they want to accomplish. Um, and Phyllis wasn't like that. She was very clear in that respect. And that's what I think the cohesiveness is what I'm referring to. Um, and taking into account that she had, she was already, in a sense, a seasoned performer. So she had already been performing, um, you know, in Miami is really where she where she first met up with Larry Alexander, and then they worked together. She had her own band uh, in, in Miami, the PH Factor, and um, so and then she come to New York and and, and really wowed audiences uh, that I didn't go to any of those early shows, but she wowed audiences that were full of celebs, you know, at the time, you know, Ashlyn Simpson, George Benson, Roberta Flack, Stevie Wonder, uh, George Harrison's a whole list of people who went to see Phyllis based on word of mouth. Once the word got out, people were like, well, who is this? Who is this? You know, because no one knew who she was until she started to perform in New York, essentially. And, um, you know, because of her stage presence, I mean, just even her physical presence, for many people, was like, whoa, you know, who is this? And she was versed in the art of performance. And, and so when she came out there to perform, it wasn't like a rookie. She was like, she knew what worked. And so that translated in terms of the conversation we had and the interview we did. You know, I, I realized I wasn't dealing with a new recording artist, new only in as much as she was making her first records for a major label, but not new in terms of how to converse and, and, and to get her point across. She dropped out of university, what Americans call college, because she was determined. She knew what of what I've read. She knew what she wanted to do. She wanted to learn on um, the trade, as it were, rather than continue with her music degree. I think she was studying, if I remember rightly. So, you know, all that 
um, wanting to tour, wanting to go out on the road, I would say added to the character building, which is why you gave her that credit of, you know, um, how did I describe it? A gift of cohesiveness. Because as you say, she was a seasoned person. You know, look at artists today and they think they can get on TV and they've made it. <laughs> so she was determined to hone her craft. True. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Did you have any inkling then of the demons that were to perhaps blight her later career? No, and I probably wouldn't have referred to them as demons, even if when I did become aware of them. I think that um, uh, I think that's the kind of harsh word, but uh, that's just an opinion about the word. Um, no. I, I, you know, as I say, when I when I when I met her, she was married to, to Larry, and they were working together on music, and they were. So I, I didn't have any reason to think that she was dealing with any particular challenges in terms of her uh, health, mental health. Um, no, I mean, in, in fact, I would say almost like the reverse. Like when I met her, she, as I said, she seemed very, I would say, almost like together in terms of her, how she would, how she presented herself. How many um, times throughout um, your writing career um, in America did you meet with her? And what were any little mm -hmm. nuggets of insights can you give us that you learned from those times? Sure. Well, there, there are a few things that are quite distinct about, about my relationship with Phyllis, which was not like my relationship with a lot of artists that I was interviewing at the time. So, um, and, and these do lead to a couple of anecdotes, which I think are quite interesting and different. So given we were neighbors, it wasn't unusual at that point that we might run into each other in the street because we literally lived on streets just one block apart from each other. Um, and um, I, I, what I recall very specifically, uh, Diane, is that I, t I remember sharing with her and Larry um, in that first um, interview, oh, that I had written some mute, some songs, and I was interested in having getting people's opinions about them. And she was said, she said, well, why don't you just bring, bring over the cassette, you know? Now that in itself was kind of like, wow, you know? And, and I felt comfortable enough to do that. So in other words, there are a lot of people I would never have done that with. Um, so she, I brought over the cassette and she listened and Larry listened. I think he was a bit more enthusiastic about the songs than she was, but she wasn't like dismissive. She said, well, let, you know, leave the cassette with me. Let, let, let me think some more uh, and listen to it some more. And, and the thing that I, I remember um, very, very clearly a, a, about her, Diana, she, she was um, supportive. I mean, we liked, I think we got along. I think, actually, I would say that that was true throughout our, our entire um, association and relationship. We did get along well as people. Now, we did have a couple of bips along the way. And, um, you know, some of them were down to me, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm not going to say it was all Phyllis being kind of, you know, being Phyllis. But, uh, you know, I remember um, uh, as an example when I, um, uh, I was getting ready to, to do my first ever and only show I ever, well, one of two shows I ever did as a performer in New York, because at that point I was writing music and recording and so on. And I invited Phyllis to my rehearsal. <laughs> And she said, okay, and she came. And I was like, oh, and then I got nervous. I was like, oh, oh wow, that we're gonna have to really like, you know, be 
I have to, you know, this is this is a, a bona fide perform recording artist. But I felt comfortable enough to ask her because she she was just a genuine sense of friendship and and and, and I like that. So uh, unfortunately, she had to see another side of me, which wasn't so so wonderful. Which was the drummer was late. <laughs> And, um, and and so we, I, we tried to start the rehearsal without him. And when he finally showed up, I almost forgot there was anyone watching and I kind of cussed him out. <laughs> like, uh, well, I did cuss him out also because I knew that the she was, I didn't know she was there. And, and so, yeah, we did the rehearsal and she made some comments about some things. And at the end, she took me aside and said, I just have one, one thing to tell you, never, never, berate or, 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 you know, I don't she used cast, I can't remember the word she used, but anyway, uh, a musician in front of other people. If you're going to do that, do it when there's no one, you can do it in front of the other musician, but never do it in front of anyone else. And I was like, wow, okay. And I took it on board, you know, and, 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 but it was that kind of, um, I said kind of generosity uh, of, of being willing to yeah, even acknowledge that I had another part of what I did. It wasn't just, oh, he's just a journalist. And that was unusual for, the, for me back then. So that was one thing. Uh, I think the other thing I remember from that particular time period, so we're talking about 78, 77, 78, was, um, um, uh, may have been around the same time. She said, she just said, I just have a piece of advice for you. As you continue with what you're doing, just be careful because a lot of people might latch on to you because of who you are and what you, not so much who you are, but what you do for a living. So she just gave me that. And, and I said, okay, I don't, I don't know if she had any particular person in mind, but she was just giving me a piece of advice. I was a little bit, I was a little bit, um, uh, resistant to that because I thought, well, you know, you don't know me that well to, to be telling me that. But I guess she must have observed something that that prompted her to say that. So, so that 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 was good. Now, the, the the next memory I have, you know, Diane. I mean, I saw her in con I saw her perform. Um, and what was that was like? Absolutely outstanding. She was one of those artists who recordings were great. But where and where Phyllis really, really shine, where she she was shining. I was because it's really shine was when she was on stage, when she was in a live setting. There was just a. a, a, a there's some people who are just great as performers and they're good as recording. They're great as recording artists too, but sometimes that doesn't translate as well onto record and her presence. Um, and you, I, you, I could see when I saw her perform uh, and it would have been in New York. I don't remember the exact concert. I mean, I'd have to do some research to find out when it was or where it was, um, was, um, you could tell, I could tell she really loved uh, performing because it gave her an opportunity to create in the moment. Many years later, one of the features of Phyllis's performance, much later in her career, was she would ask audiences for requests of songs she had not sung during the show. And um, she always was able to, sometimes she would say, why that one? You know, to the audience member, you know, they would yell out, 
I remember one particular performance that was in the Greek theater in Los Angeles and people would just, oh, sing this was it. And she wouldn't necessarily sing the whole song, but she would sing a few lines from it. And people love that. And you see, it's that to me is what marks a performer, you know, a really great performer from someone who's an okay performer and a quote, great recording artist, because they're not necessarily the same thing. There are far too many tracks to highlight for me <laughs> on this yes. particular box set. Um, but I have asked you to select um, the six that you would like to highlight for us to enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's start with your first one. I don't want to lose you. Why have you chosen this one? Yeah, that, that was a, that's a song that was on her first Buddha album. And it is a song that was um, written by uh, Tom Bell and Linda Creed, who are the famous team of Philadelphia uh, writers. Of course, Tom Bell is also a producer, um, who were responsible for some of the classic songs recorded by the Stylistics, the Delphonics, um, and then the Spinners. And that particular song had been recorded previously by the Spinners. And uh, it's a beautiful ballad. And of course, sung in a group setting is a little different from a soloist. And so Phyllis brought a, a kind of, um, I'll call it almost aching tenderness. Wow, I just came up with that phrase. Aching tenderness to the song. It's just, it's plaintive. It's just it, very moving to me. I mean, she sings it from a place, I mean, I don't know what she was thinking when she recorded it, but she sings it from a place of, um, of, of, of feeling the lyric, like she really knew what that, what that emotion was. So I chose it because I just think it's an outstanding performance. And it is an album cut, it wasn't a single. And, so, so it's, and, and also I love the work of Tom Bell. I mean, I just think Tom Bell on Linda Creed and Tom Bell on, on other compositions with other people is just one of the best um, songwriters and producers on the planet. And, and I thought the marriage of the two, Phyllis, uh, singing one of his songs. Of course, the first uh, track on her, on her album, uh, on the uh, Phyllis Hyman's self-titled album, was also written by Tom Bell, co-written by Tom Bell, um, called Loving You, Losing You. And that was, um, and was, as you previously recorded, by Johnny Mathis, apparently, which I didn't know. And, of course, Betcha by Golly Rao, which was the other song, that really launched Phyllis's career in terms of the, the special guest appearance on Norman Connor's album was also a Linda Creed, uh, Tom Bell composition at previously recorded by the Stylistics. So there was a real kind of musical marriage there. And, and, and I think Phyllis really took, took, took that, I don't want to lose you and made it for me like a classic. I don't want to lose you. I love you. You are. I don't want to lose you. I couldn't love you more. Tell me love will remain though we may change. 
She was the eldest of seven children, um, six or seven. I'm not sure. You have to look it up. Whoopsie. Look it up. It's probably in the, in the yeah, whoopsie, naughty David. So how much of her family life do you know about and can enlighten us? And how much did being the eldest child inform and influence her music? I don't know much about her family life. She didn't talk to me much about it. And anything that we know about it is retrospective. I don't know that she, uh, I don't know if she discussed it much with anyone other than the people immediately around her. Uh, the one thing that I think that I will reference uh, in regard to her growing up um, is um, the influences that she, she mentioned, which really surprised me. I mean, she really did. It was there were particular there were two in particular. I mean, Nina Simone. She mentioned Nina Simone, which of course was very dear to my heart, given that my personal association with Nina went back to 1965 when I started a fan club or Appreciation Society in London. So that was that struck a chord with me. But I, and I also but I also remember. Um, that she she mentioned James Brown. I mean, James Brown and Nina Simone are like, you know, the music's a little different, shall we say? And then the um, the Last Poets, which is not music per se, but obviously is um, spoken word or rap uh, that had a very specific. For the most part, theme, and that that was you know that was it, you know some people would say it was revolutionary talk, uh, and I mean that in the it, it, I mean that with a small R and the big R, and and that that struck me as as indicating um, something about her viewpoint on life. So it wasn't just about the music. And, and even mentioning, uh, you know, and I think about it now, even like as, as we're talking, I'm thinking, you know, even Nina, Nina and the last poets are not, were not miles apart in their perception of life and blackness. And so, you know, being a black American, I mean, that was, you know, what, you know, and, and what people were dealing with, you know, and so that, I guess, I, I now kind of regret now we're having this comes out of regret that I never asked Phyllis more about that. At the time, I guess I wasn't, she just mentioned those influences and I wrote, wrote you know, as a good little scribe, I wrote them down, but it never occurred to me to ask her why. Your second choice, I, most people know this one, it's more familiar, You Know How to Love Me. Mm. Tell us why you've chosen this. Well, <laughs> I have. Great... I love your laugh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I may. I, I, of course, it is a great recording, and the reason that I think is absolutely essential, apart from the fact that it's one of her most well-known hits, and was actually did really well in the UK and everywhere, is because I was there at part of the recording session. So the producers, uh, M. Tume, James M. Tume and Reggie Lucas, uh, I had met them in, uh, in fact in 1970, I think earlier in 1978, if I remember. And they had um, written The Closer I Get to You. They had been part of Roberta Flack's band. They'd been also, uh, 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 um, they'd also been, uh, um, 
with Miles Davis. So they were very seasoned musicians and and I got along really well with both of them. I really liked them and they like and, and they were also someone I gave my little cassette of songs to and very encouraging. And uh, I went to I remember uh, going to a session when they first started working with Stephanie Mills. And um, it, just watching them work was great. So anyway, here comes this day that I, I, I think it was M. Tume who called me and said, oh, you know, we're doing this, we're doing a session with Phyllis. And he knew I knew her. And he asked her, is it okay if I stop in? And it was literally in the neighborhood, like a three minute, five minute walk. And it was the Sigma Sound Studio the, uh, outlet in New York, they were basically Sigma Sound was a Philadelphia studio, and they had opened a, a branch in New York. So I get there, and they are in the middle or completing the recording of "You Know How to Love Me." So the track had already been laid, and and Phyllis is doing the vocal, and M. Tume, in particular, because I I I, I watched how he worked. He he could be quite. Um, um, how can we say it? Uh, I want to say a taskmaster. Well, I guess in a sense, he, 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 he knew what he wanted and he would not, you know, relent until he got what he wanted, what he, what he wanted in, in the song and a particular note. And this is about a particular note, actually. So in You Know How to Love Me, there's a very long note. She, Phyllis holds the note for quite a few, for, I don't know, I didn't timed it, but it's a very long note for any singer. And I think, and um, he was asking her to do it over and over again, over and over again. And she was getting impatient. It was like, look, you know, how many times I got to do this? She didn't say that, but you could tell she was getting, I could tell she was getting frustrated and he could tell that too. And she got impatient. She said, you know what? I'm, I'm done for now. Now she didn't mean she wasn't coming back to the studio, but she was like, you know what? Let's pause. And she may not have used those words, but anyway, she uh, walked out the room and she didn't leave the studio, but she just left the room. And, 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 and he knew that, uh, you know, she would come back. I, I guess he, he went, went out to talk to her. I don't know if he went out to talk to her. I, what I remember is... Um, what he, what M2 made did is he got he took a rose, had a I don't know maybe he went out and bought a rose I don't know if he had the rose with him I don't know but he put a rose on the microphone stand. So when she came back, when Felicity came back, it was probably about you know fifteen minutes later. It wasn't like she was gone for hours. Um, and she saw the rose, and she just melted. It was like, okay, whatever you want. And, and then they proceeded to get the, ta the take of, with that note in it, the, the, what you hear on the final recording. And um, it was a very smart psychological uh, move on M. Tume's part because I think he probably recognized he was pushing too hard and he wanted to let her know how much he respected her. And, and yes, he wanted what he wanted as a producer. So that that was a very, that was a great uh, a great uh, moment. And then I, I didn't stay for the rest of the session. And then of course I heard the results of the whole album, which I thought was outstanding. I mean, really. And that song, I mean, it's a classic. It's a dance classic, brilliant. And you know, every time I hear it, 
I, I can see, I can actually see the scene. I can see the studio, because he, he and I and Reggie behind the control, you know, on the other side of the booth and Phyllis in the booth. And, and just, it was just really quite a, quite a moment.
were your observations around Phyllis and how she was coping with um, her star in the ascendance? Uh, I think that it, it, it was starting to be a little challenging. For, I mean, she obviously wanted to have a hit. I mean, no recording artist would say, I don't want to have a hit. And um, there's something to say to insert into this conversation to add some context to it. So from a business standpoint, so she had signed to Buddha Records and Buddha Records, she had done the first album. She had done enough tracks going towards the second album. And then Buddha was absorbed into Arista, who at that point, Arista was who at that point were distributing Buddha. And so Buddha logo disappeared. And now Phyllis was an Arista recording artist, which meant she was working with Clive Davis and the Arista machine was different from the Buddha machine. Yeah, Buddha was a small, you could say almost like a boutique label. And so she, I, I mean, I can tell you, she was having a bit of a tough time with that because she didn't, it's not like she signed to Arista to begin with. And, and so she had to adjust to dealing with Clive and that whole different situation. And um, I, I, what I can remember very specifically, Diane, is that she, you know, doing the album with them, Toomey and, and, and Reggie Lucas, was, I won't say it was a compromise, but she was, and basically they were saying, look, you've got to have a hit. The record company was saying it too. And she wanted to have one. I, I think she, I, I, my recollection is that she, um, it was challenging for her. To, to because you know that album is not an album of uh, of classic recordings. I mean, you know how to love me's on there and a couple of other really good songs, but I wouldn't consider the whole album to be her best work. Um, so I think there was some compromises in there, and I think she dealt with that because you know she she did want to be out there i don't i can't remember it i don't think she made any negative comments about it i'm trying to remember let me because there was there was a um, uh, research reading up on this with arista after a yeah. period of time it became a challenge for her that um she couldn't record whole albums so she was guest appearing on other people's albums um and i think she was going out touring because obviously she needed to have an income as well so um obviously it it, it resolved itself after a period of time. But to have that as an artist to go through, um, it's not fun for anybody. I, I, do want, I, I do want to comment on that too. I, I think, Diane, you know, that she um, she didn't feel, and she said it publicly, wasn't, was, I'm not saying something that was that's like, uh, you know, uh, confidence. Um, she didn't feel that, that Clive in particular understood who, who she was as an artist. I, I do remember, you know, running into her in the street one day, and you know, obviously, as we say, we were neighbours, um, and she had just come out of a meeting uh, at Arista because Arista was on West Fifty Seventh Street, so it was all in the same neighbourhood, and she was not happy. She felt that she was he. She felt that he didn't understand who she was as an artist because essentially he hadn't signed her to the label. It's, it's different from when you know when I think about Clive and his you know signing Dion and signing Aretha. 
you know, those are like he's being proactive in signing them. And it's almost like Phyllis got acquired because of the label being acquired. And I'm sure he, he, he probably thought that it was a good match. Uh, I mean, certainly the first thing that he did with Phyllis was put her in the studio with uh, Barry Manilow um, to, uh, to do uh, Somewhere in My Lifetime. But it's interesting that they just did one track together, that one track somewhere in my life, they did a whole album together. And I don't know why, I, I, I don't know if I ever asked her why or why Barry Mallow didn't continue to work with her. Um, he did subsequently do a duet with her much later. But um, yes, I just don't think it was a good marriage in terms of like, Clive Davis's perception of what an artist should be accomplishing, and Phyllis's, Phyllis, Phyllis's viewpoint about art and artistry, because you know she was, in that sense, I think, a real artist. And yeah, recording was important, and naturally would lead to her being able to perform more often into bigger audiences and widen her audience. Um, and I think there was definitely it was a, it was it was a difficult it was a challenging relationship. Just another face in the crowd is your third choice. Yeah, that, that, that's funny because uh, it's funny because uh, it's not an obvious choice for people, I suppose. Um, uh, what I chose just another face in the crowd because I love the lyric, I love Phyllis's performance, and I and there's something about the song and the lyric that spoke to me at the time. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and listen uh, more more attentively uh, to what the lyric actually says, but whatever it was, it resonated with me. And she does, I just think it's a really great performance. And it's one of those um, kind of what I call a, a, a hidden gem. It wasn't a hit, it, um, but I think she sang her feet off on that song. I'm using the word feet pejoratively. <laughs> well, she never performed wearing shoes, did she? Well, actually, no, that's not what I meant, but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to well, me about... No, she, no, she never did. I mean, obviously, when she did Sophisticated Ladies, yes, she wore shoes. <laughs> but but I, I, I don't know that she never wore shoes. I, I don't ever use necessarily look.
did you experience in trying to put this nine CD box set together? Because I don't think it must have been that easy a task. Well, putting, put, putting this box set together was firstly, let me say from the outset, it was really a labor of love. I mean, I, um, you know, uh, had a, you know, a relationship with Phyllis really pretty much to the end of her life. I mean, we didn't talk every year, we didn't talk every week. But we had a, an ongoing association in relationship. And there were some couple of other funny stories, which if we get time to squeeze in, I will tell you, uh, that were more of a, on a personal level. Oh, please but do. The, huh? Please do, tell us. Oh, all right, well, okay. <laughs> well, two in particular, but let, let, let me answer the question first and then I'll tell you the stories, okay? So I, I've always felt that um, in the wider context of the music industry and in, in regard to artists who are celebrated for their work, Phyllis Hyman has never been fully recognized. Um, I mean, she didn't win any Grammys. She didn't have any pop hits, which is shocking. I mean, when I looked at the chart positions of her records, she never had a single, a single pop hit. Not one. So all her recordings um, 
and the hits she had were R&B or jazz related hits. Um, so I think that she basically got say, almost like ignored by the mainstream US music industry. She just wasn't, for whatever reason, a part of that whole um, recognition. And it's really been primarily black audiences who have supported Phyllis and supported her during her life and her career. And um, I think that she just never got that recognition she deserved. And I felt that I almost felt like um, um, a duty, like, like, like a responsibility to make sure that her legacy in some some small way, because a box set is is just one way of doing it, but certainly that it can be recognised and her work could be pre- preserved in that sense, and also that another generation of people could hear, hear hear the music. I'm very fortunate in having the kind of relationship I have with uh, Cherry Red Records, who who give me the latitude to be able to do something like this. So we've had other box sets, um, and and Phyllis has. We reissued some of her music before on Soul Music Records, and it's done well. And I just felt there's just time. It's just time to really um, honor Phyllis. And so putting it together was not as difficult uh, because, you know, fortunately, all the recordings on this box set are are owned by one company, which is Sony. Uh, the latter four albums uh, came out, I'm going to say five albums, sorry, came out on Philadelphia International, whose music is licensed through Sony. So putting it together wasn't difficult because it wasn't an anthology. It's literally all of our recordings, um, probably missing a couple here and there, but essentially all of our recordings. So putting it together in that respect wasn't difficult. What was um, important to me was that the choices of um, who was going to write the essays, that was important to me because that's as much an important part of a, of a box set as anything else. And I purposely and very deliberately uh, reached out to her executress, uh, who had been her personal manager, Glenda, Glenda Garcia. Um, and she and I had known each other for a very long time, like going back to like 1979, I think, or 78. And I felt like for this project to be valid, I wanted uh, Glenda's blessing. And I also wanted her participation. And so she worked with me in terms of working on the artwork and, and making sure that it was just what we both wanted. And I asked her to write an essay. And she, I think this is the first time she had written anything as extensive. And um, so that was uh, that was Glenda, and then my longtime uh, colleague, friend Janine Coveney, who written for Billboard and was my R&B editor at Billboard at some point uh, in America. Um, she also contributed a great essay, and then my colleague and again longtime friend Michael Lewis, who had been has been part of sometimes part of the Soul Music Records uh, and SoulMusic.com uh, uh, umbrella. Uh, he'd seen Phyllis quite a few times in performance, so I wanted the the, the essays to really be. Uh, how's my word for this? Uh, showing a different a different take, not just the usual old 
she did this and then she did that and then she did that. Now, we've done that before. So, um, and I wanted at least two of the essays, which is what happened, to be written by uh, black American women. Well, reading something, um, it's in the booklet uh, of the box set, Glenda talks about how she had to um, almost cover up for Phyllis at one point during um, a, a planned recording. Um, and at another moment, um, Phyllis was having um, one of her episodes and Glenda was writing or talking about having to sit her down between mm. her legs as Glenda's sitting on a chair in order to meditate her and get her back. So, you know, I read this about Glenda and I thought, what a rock. What yeah. a rock that woman has been. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, it, it, you know, at the point at, that, that Glenda is referring to, which is in the, um, the time period when Phyllis was, Phyllis's um, challenges were starting to become more evident, um, it takes a certain kind of human being to uh, work with an art, with anyone, not just an artist, but anyone who's you know, dealing with the kind of mental health challenge or the health challenges that Phyllis had. And um, yeah, that was why it was so important to me to have Glenda involved in this. Uh, I, I don't know because I never had an opportunity back then to sit down with Glenda and ask her, how are you, how are you dealing with this? You know, at that time, Glenda, Glenda was uh, partners with Sydney Francis. They were management company together. Um, you know, and Phyllis chose them in particular because that she wanted to support black-owned businesses, and, uh, and and in so choosing, she she chose uh, two women who really, um, you know, be, provided that kind of support that clearly she needed as she continued on in her career. Yeah, and, and Glenn and Glenda, as you say, tells the story of you know. Uh, of this recording session for Living All Alone. Uh, it's an incredible song. Um, and how Phyllis, it was just too personal. I mean, yes, she wanted a song to be written for her particularly, specifically, which Dexter Wanzel and Cynthia Biggs L wrote. And it is, um, it's a very haunting song. And then it just became, I think, as she describes in the line notes, when it, when it came to actually um, recording, it was just too, it was too personal. And, and, and even though she wanted to record it, it was challenging because it was really about how, what she was experiencing at the time. Well, you know, 30 odd years um, later, it would be very different for an artist like Phyllis because the support network um, is more focused on helping people with mental health issues. Um, mm -hmm. It was just bad timing, you know. I'm well, yeah, I, I think that you know. I mean, look. To be really honest, I mean, I think still there's stigma attached to mental health. I mean, we we we've heard you know celebrities of all kinds, you know, politicians. I mean, people in public life talk about how is still there's still some stigma around it. We know it's not. People think of think differently about mental health than physical health. And while they might be different in terms of, you know, the, the, the manifestation of them, um, 
I think that that it's, it still remains that way to some degree. And yes, there's a greater understanding and there's a greater network of support. You're quite correct, Diane. And um, it's taken a long time for people to evolve to the point where they can accept that um, that people do have uh, m- m- what we generally call mental health challenges. I don't call them problems because I don't like the word as, as it's associated with that particular condition um, or conditions. Uh, they're, they're challenges. 